You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. As always, we have our sermon notes available in the back. We've also got our slide notes available through our Google Drive folder if you'd like to access those either today or at a later time. We are wrapping up our study in Revelation today. Um, We've been in chapters 20, 21, and 22 over the last several weeks, and we had looked several weeks ago at the great white throne judgment, and we had said that that final judgment will force everyone to give an account for how they've lived their life, with believers being granted eternal reward because of their faith in Christ and unbelievers being eternally punished due to their sin and guilt. And it's such an encouragement to know that when Jesus returns, he brings justice. He knows all of the details. He knows all of the story. Nothing gets past him. Um, We were eating with Rob and Robin the other night, and Rob was sharing with me a little bit about his new job and some of the cases that he's worked. And he even shared with me a recent situation where uh, there was an individual they were trying for a crime um, that all the evidence pointed to the fact that this guy had done it, uh, but due to some circumstances that had passed, because it took about four years for it to actually come to trial, some circumstances had changed in this guy's life to where the jury found him innocent, uh, despite all of the evidence really pointing to his his guilt. And Rob was talking with me just about the frustration of watching this guy walk free, knowing that he was guilty of of the crime. And um, such an encouragement to know that when Jesus comes back, he brings recompense with him and, and nothing gets past him and nobody who is guilty escapes uh, right justice. Um, we certainly see that through the great white throne judgment. And then three weeks ago, we looked at the um, paradise restored picture where we see in the end, God restores the forfeited blessings of Eden, providing the conquerors an inheritance free from all the negative things associated with this current fallen world and instead filled with the eternal joy of his presence. And so what we see kind of being pictured here all through 21 and then the first part of 22 is really what eternity looks like, right? We see God recreating everything and giving us the best creation possible, and it's absent of all the bad things that we experience about this world. Uh, All of that stuff's removed. All of the effects of sin, all of the effects of the fall are completely removed. And we're destined to enjoy this environment that's that's completely renewed. Um, there's no tears. There's no pain. There's no death. There's no thirst. There's no fear of a second death. There's no closed gates, the picture there, because there's, there's no threat. There's no wickedness. There's no curse. There's no night. Uh, there's even the description that there's no seas. And we talked about the fact that even if there are bodies of water, the, the threat or the danger or the unknown about them is completely removed, right? Like, I love the ocean. Our vacation was incredible, just being at the beach. I, I would live there if I could. Uh, I, I just love being at the ocean. I love being at the beach. But there's some danger associated with, with the oceans, right? There's some dangers associated with the seas. One of the things that I enjoy doing down there is shark fishing, and, and that's probably more dangerous than I even give it credit for. Um, I take all the precautions that I can. I even have a special anklet that's supposed to keep sharks away from me when I'm in the water so that I can fish for them. They're supposed to bite my bait and not bite me. Um, we had some, uh, some rough waters in, in, in our, in our trip. And so I even ended up fishing later than I normally do. And there was one moment where it was about 10 o'clock at night 
and I had walked out to the sandbar to cast, and I never do this. Like, I never go out when it's dark, and I'm standing on the sandbar casting because I just didn't get a chance to fish that day, and I was thinking, like, this is, this is foolish. Like, this is scary. This is terrifying. This is dangerous, and I immediately started to think about the fact that there's coming a day where there won't be anything fearful in the bodies of water that we experience for eternity, um, and it's not just sharks. I caught a catfish and ended up stepping on its barb. And, and it's probably the worst pain that I've ever felt. It's the second time I've done it in my life. And, and it's such an encouragement to know that all the things that we love about creation, all the bad things that sometimes taint what we love about it are going to be completely removed, right? We're going to be able to enjoy God's creation with all of the fallenness completely removed, right? Like it's crazy to think that God created sharks originally without the intent for them to, to, to kill, Right? Like, like they're, they're, they're masterful beings that God has created. And I've enjoyed watching Shark Week all week on Discovery Channel and just kind of being mesmerized by God's creation. But they're fallen. They're, they're a fallen species because they do things currently that they weren't originally designed to do, right? Like they're, they're able to, to kill human beings and their only reason that death even exists is because of sin. And so even sharks, if they're around in, in, the, in the eternal state, they're going to be different. They're going to be transformed and changed. Because the picture we get in Revelation 21 is that all of the fallenness, all of the effects of sin are completely removed from our eternal state. Such an encouragement to see that, I think, here at the end of our study in Revelation. We're also told in chapter 21 to long for an environment that is filled with intimate fellowship with Christ, right? It's not just about getting a great world that's full of of things that we can enjoy. It's about being with Jesus for eternity, right? Like, I even have a hard time wrapping my mind around Jesus telling some of the Pharisees that in the eternal state, we don't, we're not given to marriage, that, that we don't have husbands and wives, and there doesn't seem to be the, the normal parental structure that we see with, with wife and husband and kids. And it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that because there's certainly nothing evil about that. That's something that God created. But it's also encouraging for me to then step back and realize if those things aren't needed, right, that intimate fellowship with, with a, with the opposite sex is not needed in heaven. How glorious must heaven be? How glorious must the intimate fellowship with Jesus be where those things, they're not evil, they're just not needed anymore. They're not needed in the eternal state because we get this unbelievable intimate fellowship with our creator. And that's certainly pictured in Revelation 21 as well. We see conquerors being the one who enjoy this type of future. We see those who are separated from this future being described as the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, those who are sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars being excluded from this future. And so it's certainly a reminder to us that if any of those type of words characterize us, the burden of proof falls upon us to share, to share why we would even think that we're going to be there. That, that we can't call ourselves Christians and be described in this manner and feel good about it. Because scripture would say contrary to that. All right, that brings us to Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. And I want to pick up reading there, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, as that will be our text for today. It says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. 
And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Our summary sentence for today. As we wait for the imminent return of Jesus, we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the source of our ultimate satisfaction. As we wait for the imminent return of Jesus, we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the source of our ultimate satisfaction. For our kids, we can wait for the return of Jesus best by keeping our eyes focused on him. I hope we've seen in the book of Revelation that the return of Jesus is certainly imminent, meaning that it can happen at any time and it can happen very soon, right? Like it is what we are waiting for next. And whether that's a a rapture of the second coming, we are waiting for the return of Jesus, right? That is the hope of the believer. It's the hope of the disciples. As they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, they longed for him to return. That should be true for all of us as believers. It's one of the reasons that we founded this church is that we wanted this church to be a place where people would come and would regularly hear about the return of Jesus. Not just when we were studying the book of Revelation, because we have said, the entire New Testament talks about the return of Jesus, right? We can't, we can't get away from the fact that the New Testament talks constantly about Jesus coming back. We want this to be a church where that is constantly the message that is heard, that Jesus is coming back. It's what we wait for. It's what we live for now, knowing that this is not our home, right? We've sung about it this morning, and Tyson has, has chosen songs that eloquently describe what we're studying right now. This is not our home. We are waiting for a home to come. And so as we wait for that return of Jesus, we keep our eyes fixed on him. And if we do that, we will properly be prepared for that return. All right. Just by way of introduction, there's some echoes here in Revelation chapter 22 from Revelation chapter 21. Some ways that we see John trying to tie together the first chapter and the second chapter or the first chapter and the last chapter in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. That was the very first verse that we read in this book. We jump back to Revelation 22, verse 6. It says, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. John is reminding us where this message comes from. It comes from Jesus himself. It's come through an angel, 
through the prophets to us. It's a reliable message, right? And it's a message that testifies to the certainty and to the, to, to the soonness of Jesus's return. We also see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So we talked about the blessings that come from the proclamation, the teaching of the book of Revelation, the blessings that come from hearing it and being obedient to it. We see that echoed in Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That same reminder, that same blessing being promised to us. And then back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, the last one we'll see. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account account of him. Even so, amen. We fast forward back to Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Again, that running theme that his return is soon. We need to be prepared for it. We need to be living as though we believe he is coming back. All right. The same message of chapter 1 is found in chapter 22. Keep the words of this prophecy and cling to them for your dear life amid the flood of satanic lies. Keep the words of this prophecy and cling to them for dear life amid the flood of satanic lies that will continue to circulate until Jesus comes back. Again, in Revelation 22, something we've seen throughout this book is that this book is reliable and that Jesus' return is soon. Both of those things come back up here in Revelation chapter 22 one more time. What I want to do today is to kind of close out our study and and to be as clear uh, and to be as uh, unconfusing as possible. Um, And so I want to give you seven things that I think God commands, Jesus commands of us in these last few verses here in Revelation. And so I want to be as clear as possible this morning because I want us to be able to take away these last words. These are the last things that Jesus says in his Bible. These are the last things that he gives us in his word. They should be lasting words. These things should be retained by us moving forward, okay? So our first uh, thing to remember, our first command to remember is number one, to obey his word, to obey his word. We find this in verse six and seven. It says, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. We're commanded to obey his word. And the word is to have priority in our life because of its reliability, right? The reason that we're called to obey it is because it's a trustworthy word. It's a true word. It comes from God, who is the God of the spirits of the prophets. It comes through an angel. So there's, there's direct revelation being given from God to man through an angel for the purpose of showing us what is to come. And it's to happen very soon. And there's great blessing that comes from keeping this word. The word is to have priority in our life because it's a reliable word. 
The Word of God must be guiding and shaping every day of our life. And it requires us making time to allow it to shape us. Right? Like, like most of us have figured out now that if we if we wait and expect that, that, that time to study God's Word, time to be with God is just going to happen in our schedule, we're going to be waiting until Jesus comes back for that. Right? Like, like that just doesn't happen. We don't get pockets of time in our day where, where most of us are sitting around going, I mean, I don't really know what to do next. Like, like I, I'm just, I'm just bored right now. I guess I can go study my Bible and spend time with God. Like that just doesn't happen. Like our schedules, the way we function is that we will fill our schedules every day. We'll fill our schedules every day. Nobody ever encounters somebody that doesn't say I'm busy, right? You ask anybody in here, how was your week this week? Most everybody's going to start off by saying it was busy. It was crazy. A lot of stuff happened this week. Right, like that's just the norm for everybody, right? Like, like we don't even know what busy and crazy is anymore because we experience that every day, every week. Unless we make time to immerse ourselves in God's word, we are going to miss out on it shaping us every single day and guiding us every single day. Man, the big choices, the big decisions that we make ought to be filtered through God's word every single time. Man, too often times I see people making choices and decisions that aren't filtered through God's word. They don't know what God's word has to say about it. Or they don't care what God's word has to say about it. We want to prioritize God's word because it's a reliable message, because there's great blessing in being obedient to it. It should guide and shape every day of our life. Jesus wants us to remember that as we wait for him, as we continue to wait for him. And it's kind of weird studying and finishing the book of Revelation because it's kind of like, I'm just ready for him to come back now. Like, it seems weird to now back up and study a different book of the Bible, right? Like, it's like watching the end of a trilogy and then going back and watching episode one. It's like, man, I don't want to go back and watch the rest of it. Like, I, I want to see what's going to happen next. And then we have to, unfortunately, wait for Jesus to come back right now, right? But one of the things that he wants us to hang on to is to obey his word. And that necessitates that we do go back and continue to study other books of the Bible because there's great blessing in us being obedient to it as we wait for him to come back. Number two, worship him only. Worship him only. We see this in verses eight and nine. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And if you read this chapter, it gets really confusing as to who's even talking because there's kind of bouncing back between the angels sometimes talking, John sometimes talking, Jesus sometimes talking. I have no idea why John ends up worshiping the angel here. Maybe he just gets confused as to who's talking as well, right? Like, like he sees something good, the messenger of God that has brought this message to him. And his, his feeling is, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give my, my adoration to something that's good. Right. And we could criticize him and say, man, what are you doing? Like, why are you worshiping this angel when you can worship Jesus? And yet far too often we're guilty of the same thing. Right. We take a very good thing and we make it a God thing. Right. Like we turn a piece of God's creation and we make it into an idol in our life. And we've talked about that pretty extensively here in the book of Revelation. And I think it's appropriate for us to end the book talking about idolatry once again. Because idolatry is a running theme through this book. We started with it in the letters to the churches. You had churches who were guilty of idolatry. And again, we have to break the mindset of thinking that idolatry is, is, is forming an image and bowing down to it. 
right? Like that, that's what idolatry has looked like at various times in, in history, but it's not what it always looks like. We can take good things in our life and make them supreme things in our life, right? And I've shared with you examples in my own life of how I've been guilty of doing that, taking things that are good, things that can certainly be used to bring God glory. And if we're not careful, we can distort those things and use them for our own glory or our own satisfaction in ways that God did not intend. And it's one of the challenges of being a fallen creature in God's creation, because there's a lot of great things about God's creation, a lot of things that are going to show up once again in eternity, because God created a lot of good things. We saw that in our study in Genesis. You put fallen creatures around good things, and oftentimes they make them great things. They make them end things. And that's where we have to be on guard. That as we wait for Jesus to come back, a lot of good things are going to come our way. Right? Over the next several years, some of you are going to get married that are not currently married. Some of you are going to have kids that currently don't have kids. Some of you are going to have better jobs than you currently have better houses, better cars, better things, right? I would fully expect in the next five years, a lot of us are going to have stuff that we don't currently have. The challenge is going to be that we don't become idolaters with those things, that we don't make those supreme things, that as they come our way, we're very grateful and thankful for the one who gives them to us, and we find new and creative ways to use those things for God's glory, okay? Obey his word. Worship him only. Be very careful about making good things into God things. Number three, proclaim what you learned. Proclaim what you learned for our kids. Tell others what you learned. It says in verse 10, He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. It says, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. You can go back and read Daniel chapter 12. There's two places in Daniel chapter 12, verse four and verse nine, where Daniel is told to seal it up. He's told to withhold some of that information. The reason being because the time is not near for it yet. The time is not near for it yet. It's different here with the book of Revelation. I think it's partly different because as we've said all along, these things started happening at the time that the book was written and they continue to happen until Jesus comes back. So we're not even waiting fully for some of these things to start to happen. We're in the midst of some of these things happening right now. And so Jesus tells John, don't seal this up. Don't seal this up because the time is near. And what that communicates to us is that we don't need to keep this message to ourselves. We need to share it with others. We've seen in other passages in the New Testament where eschatology, the study of the end times, it's told to us for encouraging reasons. It's told to us for instructional type reasons, right? Like it's not just meant to to whet the appetite of curiosity. We are told the things that we are told even to bring encouragement to us. We see that in the book of Thessalonians, right? Where the people were were just really confused about their loved ones and what was happening to them. And so Paul gives them a discourse on, here's what's happened to your loved ones, and here's when you're going to see them again. Take these things and encourage each other with these words. Right? So eschatology is meant to be an encouragement. What a mistake it would be for us to have learned these things 
and then keep them to ourselves and not share it with others. You guys have been equipped now in ways that a lot of Christians aren't. You have a healthy understanding of the end times. Even if you haven't fully worked out what your perspective is on when some of these things happen, you've been given enough to encourage other people outside of our church that name the name of Christ that could reap great benefits from you communicating this message. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't let this be the end of our study. Continue to study this on your own and continue to proclaim it to others that you come in contact with. Don't keep it to yourself. And I don't know how many of our discussion groups got to this question, but there's some dangers, I think, in, in the fact that we've learned so much. And so the second thing that I would say is don't become prideful about what you've learned. So we certainly want to proclaim it, but we need to be very careful that we proclaim it with grace, right? We don't want to be a bull in a china shop because we've received all this newfound knowledge that we haven't had previously. It would be very easy to start to look down on others who've never studied the book of Revelation. You know, like, what do you mean you've never studied the book of Revelation, right? Like, we hadn't either a year and a half ago, right? So so we're not... If we are better, we're not that much better than anybody else who hasn't studied it yet, right? So, so we have to be very careful that we're gracious in how we communicate some of the things that we've learned. We need to be very gracious that if we hold strongly to a particular view, that we don't expect everybody to hold to that same view, right? Like we've talked about the fact that, man, Revelation is unclear about a lot of things. And so we need to hold our views very loosely realizing we could be wrong. I've told you I could be wrong about some of the things that I've taught you, and I've tried to steer clear of being real dogmatic about the things that that could be uh, things that I'm in error about and really trying to be very emphatic about the things that are clear no matter which view ends up being right. We want to hold those things loosely. We want to communicate those things with grace. Man, if you've studied and you're convicted about a certain view, then you ought to be able to to communicate that and teach that to other people. But to do it with grace. I want to recommend a book that I just finished last night that I think is a super helpful resource for this type of discussion. It's called Graciousness. It's written by John Crotz, who's the pastor over here in Sharpsburg um, at Faith Bible Church. This book is really, really good. It's really, really good. Uh, It's written from the premise of somebody who has theological knowledge and truth and how to communicate that to others with with an immense amount of grace. That you don't become the arrogant, prideful turnoff that so many people uh, come in contact with. Some of you who have experienced this, I experienced this at college, right? Like I thought I knew the Bible. I get off to college and I begin to eat lunch with these guys who were super arrogant, super prideful about their theological knowledge to the point that I was completely turned off to what it is they were trying to teach me, even though years later I would come around and see it their way and see, you know, Scripture does say that, Scripture does teach that. But I couldn't hear the message because it was being delivered in such an arrogant, prideful way that it made me hate the deliverer and hate the message because of how it was being presented to me. This is a great book. It's really short, really easy to read. But man, I think it's super helpful, super convicting in us understanding we know a lot of truth, And that truth needs to be communicated, but it needs to be communicated in love and grace. I would encourage you to pick it up because I think it would be a great application read in light of what we've learned in Revelation to protect us from being the arrogant, prideful people that are a part of a church that just studied Revelation. Now we think that we know all and we can share it with all. 
that we be very careful that we do it with a lot of humility and a lot of grace. Okay? Because we do have a responsibility to proclaim what we've learned. All right, number three, uh, number four, live by faith. Obey his word, worship him only, proclaim what you learned, and live by faith. Verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The indicator here in verse 11 is that there is, there is a coming a time where the opportunity to change will expire. There's coming a time where the evil, evildoer will just be bound to doing evil. The filthy will just be bound to that state of filthiness. The encouragement is there's coming a day where the righteous will do right and the holy will be holy because when Jesus comes back, that separation becomes permanent. Right? It becomes permanent. And the, the, the reminder here is it's time to choose sides now. Don't, don't waffle. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be kind of in the middle. Don't be one who names the name of Christ but is involved in a whole lot of other stuff that would, would, would not show oneself to be aligned with Christ. Right? To, to, to really figure out who am I? What is my desire? How am I going to live my life? Who am I going to serve? Making those decisions now. Because there's coming, a, there's coming a time where we won't be able to make that decision anymore. Let the separation between the saved and the lost be obvious. This also comes from Daniel chapter 12. And in verse 10 of Daniel chapter 12, we see a real similar message. It says, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Again, the idea there is that we need to figure out who we are and be a part of the separation. The separation should be very clear between the saved and the lost. And that separation is based on really how we are living our life. So back in Revelation chapter 22, He says, I'm coming soon. I'm bringing recompense with me to do what? To repay each one for what he has done. Talks about washing our robes and not living like the the dogs who are outside, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So that separation that's being described here between the saved and the lost, it's very clear, it's very obvious, and it's based on our life and our actions because Jesus comes back to repay for what people have done. We see that message in Jeremiah 17, 10. We also see it in Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus is very fair in his judgment. It says in uh, Romans 2, 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who have by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. His judgment is sure. It's based on his essence of who he is. He describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Some of that language comes from Isaiah chapter 41, 44, and 48. 
all three of those passages highlighting the fact that God is very unique. He's different from his creation. He's the first and the last. That eternal aspect of who God is. He comes back to bring the judgment. We have a responsibility to live by faith until he comes. We're reminded once again here in this passage that it's those who have washed their robes that have a right to the tree of life that may enter by the city, by the gates. We see that that idea of washing, that idea of white robes throughout Revelation and throughout the New Testament. I want to read a few of those passages to you. Revelation seven fourteen. I said to him, Sir, you know, this is in response to the question, who are these? Who is this great multitude that's clothed in white robes? Where have they come from? Sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Revelation 19, 8. Talking about the bride of Christ, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he, Paul had just highlighted some of the sinful aspects of lost people. And he says, man, you guys were just like this, but something changed about you. You were washed. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And then Titus chapter 3, verse 5 is another passage that, that highlights this aspect. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Right, so we're clearly not talking about real water. We're not talking about baptism and the type of washing that would come from physically being put into water. We're talking about a spiritual change that takes place. We're talking about a spiritual renewal that takes place. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel because the idea here is that we can only stand before God if we're clean. We can only stand before God with clean robes on. And if we fail to do that, then we fall under his judgment. We started a new tradition um, this year with our family vacation um, I purchased some different children's books that, that are gospel-minded to read to our kids at night when we went to bed. So I'd gotten online and I ordered um, a bunch of the R.C. Sproul children's books. And one of them is called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. And, and it's a beautiful picture of this concept. Because in that story, and we read, A.J. and, and Abram and I read it one night. We're, we're reading this story and it's about this priest who gets these clothes and he's supposed to preach a sermon and he's supposed to stand before the king to do it, right? But he goes to do it and on the way, the storm erupts and he falls into the mud and his clothes are just filthy dirty. And he tries to stand before the king and this, this jester who's the, a picture of Satan is very critical of his appearance and says, you can't stand here. Like, you're filthy. You can't come before the king. And so the king says, okay, you've got, you've got a set amount of time to go fix this problem. 
And so the story continues where the priest is, is trying to find somebody who can clean his stuff. He tries to clean it, tries to take it to a professional cleaner. Everybody keeps telling him, man, it's so soiled, it can't be fixed. Like, like it can't be done. And it's only after he visits the prince and the prince agrees to give him his clean robe that this priest is able to stand before the king again. It's a great picture of this concept in scripture that we can't stand before God with dirty clothes on. Like we have to be washed and changed and cleaned up. And we can only have that done to us by the work of Jesus Christ. We can't do it. We can't get somebody else to do it for us. We can't clean ourselves up and nobody can clean us up for, for ourselves. It only comes through the work of Jesus Christ. We have to be clothed in his righteousness. And then when we are washed, because the picture in Revelation is that these robes are also our righteous deeds. The idea here is that when we are changed and we are saved, the good works that we produce are now coming through this power of the Holy Spirit. So we are washed for the purposes of good works. And those are now produced in the lives of those who are truly Christians. Righteous deeds should be flowing from our renewal in the blood of Christ. 1 John 3, 2 talks about those who truly long for Jesus to come back. They purify themselves with their good works. And they, they, they desire to be obedient to Jesus until he returns. We see the, the picture of sin being what keeps us out of heaven in verse 15. We see that list again of, of people who are on the outside looking in. There's a picture of, of some extreme type activities, right? Like most of us probably haven't been guilty of, of sorcery, but all of us have been guilty of lying. And we see both pictured there. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. When you filter that through what Jesus says about uh, thinking about someone lustfully being the same as sexual immorality and hating somebody being the same as murder. And we certainly have all taken good things and made them God things. We're, we're all potentially guilty of that whole list, right? And it's only by the washing of the work of Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven and be changed and be grouped differently when eternity comes. It's certainly a reminder to us that we shouldn't assume that we're a Christian if we're doing any of these things. Those who are known for falsehood, and that's kind of the, the end there, everyone who loves and practices falsehood is, is left out of eternity with Christ. They're known for falsehood. They're just like their father, the devil, who is the father of lies, according to John eight forty four. Number five, share the gospel with others. We've got obey his word, worship him only, proclaim what you have learned, live by faith, share the gospel with others. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. To all who are thirsty, the invitation is to come and to drink. In Isaiah chapter 55, The same language is used in verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to, diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. 
and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. That invitation is throughout Scripture that we can come and we can be saved, we can be changed, we can be washed. We need to make sure we've responded to that invitation. Man, what a mistake it would be for us for us to have anybody in our church that's of an age of comprehension to leave our study of Revelation having not yet responded to that invitation to come. And we need to make sure that we've all come and we're all drinking as much as we can of that satisfying water right now, knowing that, that it comes in its fullness when Jesus comes back. But we also need to make sure that we extend that invitation to come to others around us, that we have that responsibility to call others to come as well. And then number six, preserve the truth. Preserve truth. We get a strong warning from Jesus about anybody who would distort the message that he has written. It says, I warn you, verse 18, everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Strong warnings here about the distortion of his word. It finds some of its background in the Old Testament where similar warnings were given about God's law in Deuteronomy chapter four. So this isn't just about revelation. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Proverbs 36 and Ecclesiastes 3.14 are other passages that provide some background to that statement by Jesus in Revelation 22. It's certainly a warning to those who were responsible for copying it and distributing it at that time as well. Right? You had to worry about potentially somebody taking the letter sharing it with another church and potentially adding to that. I mean, we can be very thankful that God oversaw the entire process of our Bible coming together to make sure that that did not happen. And it's warnings like this that protected it from happening, right? There's strong warnings here that anybody that does this, God's going to either add to or subtract from their eternity, right? The idea here is that he is going to add to their judgment if they add to it, or he's going to subtract from their inheritance if they subtract from his word. The implications here is that we are to not distort the word by making it say things that it does not say. That's where legalism comes into play. When people start to add to God's word and mandate things that are not in scripture. You have to do this to be a Christian or you have to do this to be saved. That's what legalism is. Sometimes we label things legalism that's not legalism. Right? And sometimes people want to call the legalism card on things that scripture is very clear about, right? Like it's not legalistic to say you shouldn't be living with your girlfriend. That's not legalism. That's what the Bible says, right? Like the Bible would say that. That's not legalistic. That's not conservatism in a negative way. That's what the scriptures have to say. We are called not to distort the scriptures by adding to it things that the Bible doesn't say. 
and we're not to distort the word by making it say less than what it says. That's where antinomianism comes in. That's the, that's the philosophy of, of being able to say you're a Christian and then kind of live the way that you want to, kind of minimizing sin, minimizing the mandates of Scripture, that I'm a Christian and I'm forgiven and I don't have to do some of these things. We don't want to make Scripture say more than it says, and we don't want to make it say less than it says. We also don't want to tamper with it by the way that we live from a functional standpoint, meaning you might not say that you think a Christian has to do this or, or a Christian doesn't have to do this, but you may live that way, right? So we don't want to become functional legalists or functional antinomianists, even though we may not verbally say it, right? We can become very judgmental towards others because they're not making the choices and decisions that we're making, and we're trying to align our lives with Scripture, but there's some flexibility and freedom sometimes in some areas, and we can become very judgmental towards others because they're not doing it the way that we're doing it. We have to be very careful that we don't add to Scripture or subtract subtract from Scripture. It also means we ought to value Scripture and labor to understand it so that we get it right. Anybody ever seen examples of how this is, has kind of happened, where people have added to or subtracted from, or is anybody willing to confess and say, man, I've been guilty of this in the past? Any examples that you can think of where this was done in your context? The adding or the subtracting to Scripture. I know for me, I grew up in a, in a church culture where I don't even think my dad and my mom my dad being the pastor of our church necessarily believes some of these things, but the culture of our church and the culture, the network of churches that we were a part of um, really mandated some things that w- were not in scripture. Like I remember my mom being very careful about where she would go in public wearing pants because the network of churches that we were a part of said you couldn't do that as a woman. So like it was sinful for a woman to wear pants. I remember us having to be very careful about going to the movie theater to watch good movies because it was just kind of a part of the church culture. You don't go to the movie theater. Um, I remember being a part, and I've shared this with some of you guys, that I was a part of my first youth camp that I went to um, was so strict about what was right and what was wrong for girls and guys in dress code that even the boys weren't allowed to wear shorts. And so when it was swim time, I was swimming in a pair of docker pants and the girls were swimming in Sunday dresses in a creek, and we were swinging on a rope swing in like our Sunday best. And I just remember thinking, like, this ain't right. Like, like, like this is there's there's something not right about. It. I don't see this in scripture as to why it has to be this way. And it wasn't just this is the dress code. Like, it was this is the right dress code. Like, this is how we want to live our life all the time, right? Like, we have a dress code at Trinity, but nobody would say. To be out of dress code is to be sinful on your own time. That's kind of the culture I grew up in, though. It was to be out of this dress code at any time is sinful and wrong, right? It was the same way for uh, for tattoos, for alcohol. And, right, Scripture has things to say about all of these things, right? Like, we should dress with modesty. We should dress like a man and we dress like a woman. There should be distinctions in how we dress. I think we should be very clear about, about gender, right? We, we should be very careful not to abuse things like alcohol. Right? We need to be very careful in thinking through, does it make sense for me to, to, to put something on my body permanently or not? But man, those things aren't, aren't sinful in and of themselves, I don't think, according to Scripture. 
Now, there's a lot of talk about weaker and stronger brother, and I love the fact that a lot of times people in our church that I know drink alcohol are very careful who they drink it around, and oftentimes will ask me, hey, I know we're about to go do this. Do you think the person that's coming with us would be offended if I drank in their presence? I mean, that's, that's healthy. that's healthy thinking. That's healthy discussion. Right? I grew up in a culture where those things were added to Scripture as being sinful. That's very dangerous. It's very dangerous for us to add to Scripture in such a way where we begin to abuse people with Scripture. I also think there's a, a strong example within our culture, and we were, me, Ben, and Jesse were talking last night. There's a lot of churches in this area. You can go to those churches, and you can live with your boyfriend and girlfriend, and nobody's going to say anything about it. It's just going to be excused. It's going to be just justified. It's okay to do that, right? They, they, they're going to make Scripture say less than what it says. And that's not okay either, right? Like, we don't want to add to Scripture, but we don't want to take away from Scripture either and, and, and allow it to be more free than it is. It's got some very clear things that it says about holiness and sexual purity. Those are some examples that I've seen, I know, in my own life. I want us to be very careful that we aren't guilty of this ever as a church or as individuals in our church. And again, you may never verbalize it, but we also want to be very careful that we're not functioning this way in our thoughts and in our hearts as well. That we're not judgmental towards others for not living the way that we think they should live if it's not clearly spelled out in Scripture that way. Lastly, number seven, invest in the future. Invest in the future. Back in Revelation chapter 22. Verse 20, he who testifies that these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The implication here at the end here with the idea of amen, come, Lord Jesus. It's a it's a cry that that affirms we want this to happen. And we want Jesus to come back. We want him to come back now. We must grow less and less attached to this world as we anticipate his return. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come now. Hebrews chapter 11 which we'll, we'll be able to look at this chapter in more in depth when we get there to it in the coming months. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And he's talking about Abraham and and Sarah and their perspectives of longing for something far greater than what this world could offer. I think as we leave Revelation, as the, the continued delay sets in, that 2 Peter three has to be a, a constant reminder for us that the reason he hasn't come back yet is because he, he wants everyone to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Right? And so we don't grow discouraged in the delay. We we grow thankful 
that Jesus hasn't come back as well because it means that more people are getting saved. More people will get saved today because Jesus didn't come back yesterday, and we can be thankful for that. I think in kind of closing, I think the main point of this book that we've seen is that faithful endurance to the end will lead to eternal blessing. And by God giving us that eternal blessing, he receives great glory. All of this has been application, so I don't have application for you because all seven points are application. Obey his word, worship him only, proclaim what you have learned, live by faith, share the gospel with others, preserve truth, invest in the future. We'll talk more about how to practically do some of that next week as part of our application Sunday. But our family worship questions in closing, review the final seven commands together as a family and then discuss some ways that you can be intentional together as a family to do some of these things. I'm going to pray for us and then Tyson and the guys are going to come and sing us in one more, or lead us in singing one more song. Father, we thank you so much for the study of Revelation. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal what is soon to come to pass. We're thankful that you haven't left us in the dark. You haven't left us clueless about your plans. The fact that you have included us shows us that we are part of your people, part of your close-knit community. God, we thank you that you've told us about the future. You've told us enough about the future to be encouraged. You've told us enough about the future to persevere and to stay true to you, to keep our eyes focused on you. God, I do pray that as we move forward in our own sanctification, that we would be faithful to remember the things that you've called us to do, that we would seek to obey the word that you've so clearly given to us, that we would worship you and worship you only, that we would find ways to proclaim what we've learned, that we wouldn't be prideful about our newfound knowledge, that we wouldn't be puffed up that we would be very humble and gracious in communicating with others and that we would seek to share the gospel as a piece of that communication, that we would call people to come, to come to our Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that we would persevere to the end, that you would keep us believing. We'd be guarded and protected from the lies around us, that we would instead preserve truth and seek truth, love truth. God, I pray that we'd be able to hear these last words and make them lasting in our own life. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.